God of grace and God of glory, we thank you for coming to love us so vulnerably in Jesus. Help us in return to love you, to love each other, to love the folks around us with the same vulnerability. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Wherever you go on this planet, we discover that mountains especially are holy places of transcendence and mystical encounter with God. Think about it, whether Mount Kilimanjaro, whether Mount Everest, Mount Fuji, Mount Denali, and today we learn Mount Entoto. Beautiful. In Galilee, there is a much more humble mountain than Mount Everest. In fact, in comparison with Mount Everest, you might only call it a hill, Mount Tabor, Mount Tabor, which rises above the wheat fields and the grape arbors below a mere 1,800 feet. But it is there on this mountain that, by tradition, our gospel story today unfolds. And just to get our bearings, if Mount Tabor were to rise up right above East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church, then Nazareth would be over in Landisville, and the Sea of Galilee over in the town of Paradise. That's how close different places are in Scripture. Now, right before today's story, Jesus has just asked his disciples what may be be the most important question that ever is asked of any human being, and that question is, who do you say that I am? It's a question that we still contemplate even today in our day. Who do you say that I am? And finally, Peter answers Jesus and he says, You are the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And Jesus then shares with them the great, great mystery of his coming death on the cross and then being raised three days later by God. And he then calls Peter to take up his own cross and to make this pattern of dying and rising. Dying and rising. The transformational pattern of his own life as well. Because remember, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It can never become fruitful, right? Now maybe we sit here today and we think, what does this pattern of dying and rising, dying and rising, have to do with our own lives? Don't we too need to die to fear and rise to trust? To die to hatred and to rise to love? 
This dying and rising pattern happens as well in our own lives through the experiences perhaps of a health crisis, a job loss, or a serious moral failure. Perhaps our dying might be to racism, to the privileges of empire, to an addiction, and being raised to newness of life. You see, ultimately, all of our dying and rising in this life here on earth is preparation, it's training folks for our final death and our final resurrection to eternal life. It's all preparation. In our story today, Jesus now seems, after this conversation about dying and rising, to feel that three of his disciples in particular, Peter, James, and John, are now ready. They are primed for a fuller encounter with God. And so he takes them up on the mountain so that silence and solitude with God can begin to do their transformational work. This, by the way, as we've been seeing this year, is one of the seven times in Luke, seven times, that we find Jesus leaving the crowds, turning off his phone, and going off to a quiet place to pray. And it's while... He is praying today. Don't miss that. It's while he is praying today that his face suddenly becomes radiant and his clothes turn dazzling white while he is in prayer. And the disciples in this story suddenly see Moses speaking with Jesus. Moses, the recipient of God's law, remember? And they also see Elijah speaking with Jesus, the great prophet. Until now, Jesus has been telling them, telling them that he's not here to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? And now he shows them, he stops telling them, he shows them as they see these three together in beautiful harmony and conversation. And then a cloud, a radiant cloud, sweeps over the mountain. And a voice says, This is my son. The chosen one. Listen to him. Earlier, God spoke the very same words, or very similar words, remember? At Jesus' baptism. But the three disciples were not there, so for them, this is all Brand new. And what's happening here, dear friends, is that Peter and James and John are being given a glimpse of Jesus' fuller identity. Seeing his divine glory shine through his humanity. They're finally seeing what's really real. Beyond our usual limitations, 
of space and time. You see, through a life of prayer, God develops in us the spiritual faculties to be able to see in this way. And these three, these three lucky disciples are on the front end of discovering that to look into the face of Jesus is to see the unveiled face of God. And please hear what Please hear what incredible good news this is. When we look into the face of Jesus and we see his grace and we see his love and we see his justice and we see his compassion and we see his concern for the most vulnerable around him, we are looking into the face of God. In fact, dear friends, what happens in the temple right after Jesus dies on the cross? The curtain. The veil. The veil hiding the Holy of Holies is torn in two, symbolizing the awesome access. The access that we now have with God through Jesus. As Paul tells us today, in Christ, the veil is set aside. And then in our Exodus reading today, we find ourselves on yet another holy mountain, Mount Sinai. This one is a little bit taller, 7,500 feet in what is in Egypt today. Our story of Moses climbing up Mount Sinai to commune with God and to receive the two tablets of the covenant takes place just after God has set them free from their terrible house of slavery slavery in Egypt. And in this story as well, a radiant cloud overshadows the mountain. Did you notice that? And Moses beholds the luminous glory. In Hebrew, it's a wonderful word. The Shekinah of God. The glory of God the luminous, radiant glory of God. And afterward, Moses' face shines so radiantly that Aaron and all the others flee in terror. What a sight. Now this week, I sent you a photo of a horned Moses. I hope some of you saw that. This is a statue sculpted by Michelangelo in Rome. So maybe you're wondering, why the horns? What's that about? Well, it it all goes back to a translation problem in Exodus 34, verse 29. You see, now hang in there with me, this is interesting. You see, in the original Hebrew... 
the Hebrews suggest that after Moses' encounters with God, Moses would come down the mountain with his face emitting rays like horns of light. See that? Sorry, it should be ten times larger. In Michelangelo's day, his Bible was in Latin. And it simply said that Moses' face, instead of saying it shone, it said it was horned after he was with God. And ever since then, Moses has been portrayed with horns. Now in our story, that's not the point of my sermon. In our story, we find... In, that, in those words, that, or that story that Jessica was reading for us, we find this almost bizarre cycle, don't you think, of Moses veiling and unveiling and then revealing himself. And for the longest time, I thought that all of this had to do with protecting Moses from the glory of God. But then I suddenly noticed that this veiling isn't For God. Did you notice that? It's for the people down below who can't bear the splendor of God's light. Did you notice that when Moses, that what Moses does whenever he goes back up the mountain to commune with God, verse 34, He takes off his veil to be with God. God, you see, desires face-to-face communion with Moses and with us. God's glory is not meant to cause us to cower or to run away in fear. It is meant to be reflected in our own unveiled faces and to shine forth in our own unveiled lives. In first or 2 Corinthians 3 today, we then hear the call The call for us to live our lives with unveiled faces. Open. Transparent. Open-hearted to one another. Lives where we're bringing everything that was once hidden into God's healing light. You see, God has created us for communion for precisely this kind of of unveiled mutuality and kinship. And I love the definition I once heard for this kind of intimacy. Into me see. Into me see. In my last year of seminary, Willard Swartley, our dear New Testament prof, suffered a a serious heart attack. 
And while he was recovering, there was this great, great, amazing outpouring of love and prayer for this dear man. And a few weeks later, when he was finally strong enough, he came and he spoke in chapel. And he said this to us. He said, in our weakness, we feel closer to God and to each other than ever before. And I was so taken by that that I wrote it right down in my Bible with the date, February 11, 2000. In our vulnerability, we're drawn closer to God and to each other than ever before. Or as Leonard Cohen sings, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. Here at East Chestnut, haven't we been discovering the rippling effect of one person's vulnerability with us. You know, after one of us shares about a depression or a broken relationship, a financial need, an addiction or doubt, don't the rest of us suddenly feel much more free to lower our veils as well with one another? Amen? You know, what we're discovering here, folks, is that vulnerability is not weakness. It's true courage. It's true freedom. As Brene Brown says so beautifully in one of her TED Talks, what we're discovering is that when we lower our veils with one another, The more we do this, the more each of us is set free to uniquely reveal the image of God, to shine with the essence of who we really are in Christ. Last Monday night, when we gathered down in the lobby before our community meal, a woman started sobbing, her body just shaking, convulsing. Her partner, we soon learned, was in prison, and she felt desperately alone. Our dear Patricia Heyman, God bless her, went over and put a big comforting arm around her. We all have brokenness in our lives. But some of us have the middle class privilege of being able to hide it away. And we get really good at that. Other folks are just as broken as we are, but they don't have the luxury of hiding it. All we have to do is look in their faces, look at their bodies, and we know it. And this week, as I've been living with these scriptures of unveiling, it's been dawning on me how terribly crucial the lowering of our veils is 
to our connecting more deeply with our neighbors here in this city and in this neighborhood. Vulnerability is missional. It allows our neighbors to see our shared brokenness and it allows our neighbors to see our shared need for God. You see, there is nothing on earth more alienating than a church that's filled with pretense and self-sufficiency where nobody seems to need God. Ever been in a church like that? Nobody seems to be in need. They've got it all worked out. But there is nothing more attractive, dear friends, than a community that is becoming more vulnerable, more truthful, and more authentic in Christ. Dying to all the bogus facades and pretense and being raised to vulnerability in Christ. So in the next 40 days of Lent before us now, how might we all lower our veils? How might we lower our veils and draw closer to God, draw closer to each other, and draw closer to our neighbors nearby. Amen.